Hello, I'm Toby Haydock, and even though nobody can see me, I'm currently disguised as a Chinese Mandarin. Shalom, shala, here to talk about Doctor Who to a gentleman, so I'm going to say, Tim, who are you and why am I talking to you about Doctor Who? Well, uh, I'm Roger Lim. I'm being interviewed because I worked on Doctor Who in the 1980s. I wrote uh, music for several of the stories, so I was there for about four or five years, something like that. Yes, you straddle a number of Doctors, and uh, your music was what I used to play on the first record player I bought, because it's on Doctor Who the Music Volume 2. Um, so, but let's go right back to the beginning. So, um, wh- wh- where did you discover your love for an aptitude of music, and, and how did did young Roger manifest that into a living? Well, I first, I suppose, realised that music was quite interesting when I was about ten or eleven. I'd had music lessons, piano lessons, from the age of five, but I didn't really like it very much. Uh, I had a rather boring old, dry old stick as a music teacher, and he wasn't really good. He used to come to the house and try and get me to play Scarlatti things and scales and everything and he was he was a very um dispiriting experience so up until the age of 10 in the end my mother gave him the sack because I wasn't making any progress she pretty well gave up on him and gave up on me at the same time but I discovered after I stopped having lessons I started going to the piano and playing for myself and uh, I discovered that actually playing the piano was rather nice and I started fiddling about playing chords making up some tunes making up hymn tunes my mother was very impressed that I could make up hymn tunes because she, she wasn't a great churchgoer but that was at least something that she could boast to her neighbours about and so I played the piano for quite a bit um, had some more piano lessons from a, a rather better music teacher then uh, when I was about 15 I was encouraged to take up the double bass now this was quite interesting the music teacher said would you like to learn the bass and play in the school orchestra and I said yes I might as well okay I was quite a positive chap at the age of 15 so I had lessons and I was given the school bass and one of my friends at school saw me carrying the bass into school he said hmm do you play the bass I said yes he said would you want to come and play in the school jazz band we need a bass player I said but I'm a classical player I can't play that jazz stuff he said oh come on give it a go so I gave it a go and um, well that uh, decision sort of lasted uh, certainly shaped the rest of my life because I became more and more involved in playing jazz mainly on the double bass but occasionally on piano studied music in the sixth form studied music at university conducted shows did a lot of writing not an enormous amount of writing but a certain amount of writing when I was asked to and uh, finally finished at university and joined a jazz group um, on the road, you might say. Went to Germany and places like that. This was all pre-BBC. Uh, I'm still, uh, at my very advanced stage, I'm still actively playing gigs. I had one two days ago. I think I've got two this coming weekend. I'm out usually playing piano, sometimes the double bass. We go out and play the numbers we know and we have a, a small but dedicated following and um, it seems to be going okay. And so how do we jump from uh, a jazz musician to the, and certainly the period that you worked on Doctor Who, the very electronic sound of the BBC Radiophonics Workshop? Well, I think one of the keys to it was the fact that I did study music at A-level and at university, so I knew how to write music, I could do the dots. So as well as having all the instinctive stuff about playing jazz 
and uh, improvising, I could actually, I, I was able to uh, write music and, you know, write a fugue if it was necessary. Um, and this was always going at the back of my mind, even when I started off at the BBC. Now, for 10 years at the BBC, I did other jobs apart from uh, the workshop. I mean, I didn't get to the workshop until I'd been in the BBC for 10 years. Uh, I started off as a studio manager. That's the person who sits behind the glass and operates the microphone, edits the tape, plays the records in, that sort of thing. And then I graduated from that to becoming a newsreader on the World Service. So uh, I was sitting in this tiny little room and my voice echoed around the world. It was a strange experience. And I went from there to being a TV announcer, um, doing the voiceovers between programmes on BBC One and BBC Two. But um, by um, a happy chance, I happened to meet an old friend of mine who'd been a studio manager, uh, Paddy Kingsland, and I met him... Uh, just outside Broadcasting House, and he, I asked him what he was doing. He said, oh, I'm working at a place called the Radiophonic Workshop. He said, have you heard of it? I think I said, I've heard of it. Yes, what do they do? Mend radio phones. He said, no, no, no. He said, you really like it. It's a, a musical place. We're writing and inventing music for radio and TV and sounds as well. He said, I just managed to get a full-time job there. He said, why don't you apply for an attachment? So I did apply for the attachment, and I was there for three months doing the job. But after that, I had to go back to being a studio manager again. And uh, eventually, I gravitated to being a TV announcer. But after about two or three years, a chance came to work at the workshop full-time. And I took that chance, and I got there in, what, 1974. And I was at the workshop for 20 years. And uh, you were at there at a good time for the workshop in terms of Doctor Who, because Dudley Simpson, who'd been doing Doctor Who's music... Um, with a with a with um, conventional instrumentation uh, was phased out when John Nathan Turner came in and wanted an all new electronic uh, thing. Would you have liked to have done Doctor Who, uh, but but more in the way that Dudley did it, or do you think embracing electronics was electronic music was the way to go for the show? Well, um, Dudley Simpson, I met him many times. He's a lovely chap and skilled musician, brilliant musician, not just a. Uh, writer of um, electronic music themes for TV, um, but he was also a music director in the theatre and all sorts of stuff. Towards the second half of his um, the work he did, he quite often used to come to the Radiophonic Workshop and incorporate electronic music tracks onto his scores. So he would write the stuff. I mean, you know, this is burning the midnight oil. He wrote every note down. Uh, it must have been... Uh, he must have been under a lot of pressure. I know he was, and it was quite exhausting. Even for a, a lively guy like him, he did find the pressure quite heavy. Then he would do one session with his musicians. He would bring the multitrack tape to the Radiophonic Workshop, where we would uh, add, uh, at his uh, instruction and the way that he constructed it, more... Uh, more, more musical tracks, electronic music tracks, particularly using the synth um, 100, which was also known as the Delaware. And that, he was doing that when I first went to the Radiophonic Workshop. Every Thursday it was Dudley Simpson doing Doctor Who music, and I used to sit in and watch him do it, and I was uh, full of admiration for him. Now, having said that, I think, um, although he's, he was immensely skilled and the music was wonderful... I think after 10 years, it became, um, how should we say, uh, I think it was really, I think we had to move on to something else. Um, and um, Dudley was phased out by John Nathan Turner, and John asked for the workshop to provide the music entirely. Now, I'm not quite sure what the politics of all that was going on behind, but all I know was that in about 1980, 81, we started to do the scores on our own without Dudley Simpson. And it was also an interesting time because we were... 
There were a lot of um, new techniques at the workshop. We had uh, more multi-track tape machines. There were new sorts of synthesizers available. And computers were just beginning. So it was an interesting time, and we were able to use all these techniques um, in our um, day-to-day work, not just for Doctor Who, but for all the other programmes that we were working on. When you come to work on Doctor Who, there's one couple of... things you have to remember. First of all, you bring your own baggage with you. You bring your musical skills, your musical knowledge. You bring all the themes and chords that you've worked on over the years. But you've also, when you go to Doctor Who, you have what they call the house style, which is to say that um, you can't be too outrageous. You can't be too far outside the box. Having said that, you know, it's electronic music. You can experiment... And quite often, you know, with all experiments, quite often experimenters fall flat on their face. And uh, I must say, at the workshop, quite often I would experiment with things. As far as the cultural side of Cassius' wedding thing, well, I, I was thinking, well, I don't want a wedding march. All I want to do is to uh, come up with a nice dance theme, a lively dance theme, which people <laughs> might want to uh, move to at a wedding. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I really can't imagine... Anything other? So I came up with this uh, lively theme, played it on a sort of uh, one of the synths there, and had some percussion going in the background, and um, it it went down very well. I think was it John Nathan Turner described it as as uh, what did he call it now? Um, Oh, Lost Horizons music. I'm not quite sure. I know there was a film out called Lost Horizons, which I have to admit I don't know, hadn't seen it, but I that's what he described it as, and I'm quite happy to go along with that, even though I'm not quite sure exactly what he meant. And did you, uh, you, you mentioned before we started talking, because we were talking about your sons who were both rabid uh, Doctor Who fans, um, is that you would have the script. So did you have to start writing the music blind initially to give yourself enough lead-up time? Um, or did you, the, the, the music composition only take place once you could see the, the, the look of the thing? I didn't do any serious practical work until I received the um, recording of the episode when I could measure it and know exactly what, what, uh, I was, what was involved. Having said that, I would read the script. I might even go through the script. Mm, would I? Uh, of course, it all depends with the, what the director wants. I don't actually remember talking in detail to any of the directors about their music, his music, what he wanted from the music, until I received the recording of what had happened in the studio and, and it had been edited together. Because at that point, you know exactly to the nearest 25th of a second how long the music is, and that's when the real briefing takes place, when the uh, director comes along with the um, cut of the episode, and that's when the work starts. And, and how much does the director dictate... Um you know, your work, or do, is it just a case of tweaking various little bits and bobs? Well, that's a very good question. Directors vary in their approach to music. Some of them just say, oh, well, you know, go and get on with it, and if I like it, I'll use it. Uh, others will say, look, this is what I want, I want it uh, like this. Or quite often I say to them, look, give me a starting point. Have you got some music that you've heard that you like the sound of, which I can sort of steal? Well, not steal the theme or anything, but steal the sort of atmosphere and the ambience of this particular music. Is this present me with a little bit of music that you've heard, which is you think might do the sort of music that might do the job at this particular point? And um, some directors were able to do that. Not very many, I'm sorry to say. When I came to work with Graham Harper, he was he himself would say that he wasn't a musician of any sort, but he knew what um, he wanted the music to do, and he was able to. 
enthused me somehow. It's an unconscious thing. I mean, I really don't know how it worked, but I did find that he was a very, very positive um, influence, particularly in the briefing. And also, when he used to come to listen to what I'd done, he was so positive about the things he liked that I didn't resent the fact that he asked me to revisit one or two of the cues which weren't doing exactly what he imagined that he'd wanted them to do. I have to say, um, your work for Harper is very different to your work for the other directors. I mean, I, I think the score for Caves of Androzani in particular, it's a great score. Well, thank you, yes, it, it's, I'm very pleased with it, and the one that came afterwards, the Revelation of the Daleks, mm. I'm proud of that too, another Graham Harper-directed uh, uh, story. I think several things. Um, first of all, those two were the last two Doctor Whos I did, or put it this way, they were number eight or nine I'd already worked on several beforehand and certainly been learning on the job, you might say, learning what worked, what didn't work. Another thing about um, the later stories was we had better tools at our disposal. The, the synthesizers, um, the, the whole business of synthesizers moved on quite rapidly and at that point in the early 80s there was some wonderful new machinery available which did the job that you wanted them to do much better, much more um, rewardingly, if there is such a word, than the synthesizer we'd had when we started off at the beginning. I'm not particularly um, bothered by the fact that some of the early ones... They sound a little bit technically, a little bit thin. I think. I think. The, for example, we, you mentioned the keeper of Trakan. That worked quite nicely for, uh, musically. Although, once again, I had fairly basic synthesizers to work with. Uh, the next one, um, what was the Fort next? Doomsday. Fort of Doomsday. And I yeah. quite enjoyed that because I, I made it quite electronic, um, almost um, abstract in some ways, uh, some areas. Trying to remember who the director was. That was John Black. He did both of your he first did. two. Oh, right. That's right. Yes, it would be. But that's right. And I got, I got on pretty well with John, and he um, he was he was good. In fact, I got on well with most of the directors, but some of them had more of a positive influence on me uh, than, than others. For, for to Doomsday is a funny old thing. I think the music in that, there's, there's opening, that your space music in that is mm. very elegant, and, mm. and it's... And it's I think it's a slower-paced story than, than much Doctor Who. It's, it's, it's almost trying to be a bit more sort of thoughtful and poetic, and I think the music matches that. There's some great, elegant, long sort of music. Yes, I, I do know what you mean, and I think... Here's a funny story. When we, what happens is what you do the dub, and at about five in the afternoon after you've finished dubbing, John Nathan Turner would come along and have a look, um, and uh, you'd play the episode to him, and he would make comments, and you most of the time they're favourable comments and the programme would be put to bed, as you might say. Um, but on one occasion, we, set, we, we uh, teased him a little bit. Um, the opening of that particular episode, the space cross goes over the top. And just as a little joke to set, every, set the scene as sort of a light-hearted, we played the British Airways theme as it went up. <laughs> we'll take good care of you. As a, as, and then, uh, you know, he, he got the joke, and of course we weren't going to put that into the programme. That was a little joke we played on him before we did the proper playback, and then we did the proper playback, and the, the music was, um, was OK. But there was a, it was, gives you an idea of the sort of um, jocularity, if that's the right word, that goes on. We don't take it... well. We take it seriously at one level, but we're quite happy to have a little joke now and again. And I remember one of the 
music themes which came up onto one of the uh, albums called Exploring the Lab, I yeah. think it was called. Yeah. That was from Fort Doomsday. And that, that was quite nice. That's got a nice sort of ethereal, electronic quality. Well, we, we, the, the, we, then you get to um, the different director, which was Ron Jones, on, uh, on a... And it's a curious... It's with Doctor Who's only post-Patrick Troughton purely historical adventure, which was Black Orchid. Oh, yes. Um, where you're doing... Where you're having to score the 1920s with electronic music. Well, do you know, when they show, showed me the uh, cut of it, and they, we talked about a bit about it beforehand, it was the... Um, the, the you're right, right, the setting was 1920s, and the setting was not in some alien environment. It was at a large English country house in the 1920s. I said, what I want is a piano. Can I use the piano in this? And the, there was a, one or two raised eyebrows. But I said, look, we're in um, 1920s English country. So they would have a piano. I mean, I'm not going to start playing 1920s hit songs, but I'm going to use the piano as an integral part of the scoring uh, mechanism. And I did that, and it seemed to work quite nicely. Um, and then time flight. Yes, it was all... I do remember finishing it and thinking that it had not been as rewarding as some of the other uh, stories that I'd worked on. But I mean, I, I'm not going to make a league table of which were the good. Some, some of them worked... I'm going to say some of them worked better than others. They all worked wonderfully, but some of them worked better <laughs> than others. Now, is it the, 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 and then you did the, the immediate next story, though it was the following year, which was Arc of Infinity, where you've got this great piece of dramatic music yes. that you've had to put over a man wearing a rubber chicken on his I head. I know, yes, <laughs> I know. I, I think I, I'm going to use the phrase no comment. Yes, I, I was never quite taken in by the Ergon. You're quite right. It did look like a pantomime chicken. And, um, and, I, had to, and I was asked to provide something, and I did it, and... Um, it was um, it was wonderful, but it wasn't as wonderful as some of the others. <laughs> but I guess that's where you know you're having to, in a way, give ballast to some of the less the, the things they haven't quite managed to pull off in the studio. I suppose so. And but you know it's the law of diminishing returns. In the end, uh, you you, you know, however hard you hit something, if you haven't got the shots, it's going to make your job extremely difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, your next one had um, uh, had another. Uh, I, a monster I quite liked when he gets stick in some quarters who was the Garm who was a big hairy yes, dog thing that, that, was that was Terminus and Terminus, it was directed by right. Mary Ridge Mary Ridge that's right I remember yes good old Mary I'd worked with her in Birmingham before when I worked on The Newcomers ah. I was sound effects boy on The Newcomers and uh, you know I was working in behind the scenes um, and I met Mary Ridge then and thought she was a pretty good and forceful director and we got on very well on Terminus it was an interesting show it was all a very um, dark and black thing with all these you know I can't remember much about it but you're quite right the Garm looked a bit like a Scottish terrier or something didn't it <laughs> yeah. this strange uh, dog's head and um, and a strange Birmingham accent as well, which I couldn't quite do. Do you remember how it lots, lots of planets have a Birmingham I think oh, is that the new series would yes. say <laughs> um, but 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 there were all these crowds of people who had terminal diseases and were sort of tramping around, and we did some sort of funeral march or something rather. Yes, it was all a bit dark, wasn't it? I, I remember on one occasion, um, I was with Mary, and she brought her assistant with her, and we, I was trying the music against some of the acting, and she was enjoying things. It seemed to be going well, and at one point we'd do a big cut, and I'd put this big drum beat there, and I think I'd probably got the microphone or the, the speakers up a bit too loud, 
because this great big drumbeat, her poor assistant jumped out of her skin, almost jumped out of a chair. I said, I think we're going in the right direction here, Mary. If, we, if, you, if your uh, viewers are going to jump out of their chairs, that's what we're looking for, that's isn't it? Exactly what exactly what they need. And what about your colleagues? Um, I was usually, most of the time, full of admiration for the stuff Peter Howell had done, because I, I think he, he set... I wouldn't say set high standards, but he was he was the one to watch, if you know what I mean. Right. He's very inventive and very good technically at balancing various um, e- elements together. And uh, yes, he, he was... Uh, of course, he re-recorded the Doctor Who theme, which was a, a mammoth task, but, you know, he worked terribly hard and got a wonderful result, as you know. I was collaborating, of course, with Dick Mills, Indeed, who was doing yeah. the sounds, and quite often he would come in and we would just compare notes about a certain scene, um, because there's nothing worse than playing some nice, quiet music, subtle music, if there's going to be the hum of a generator or something going behind. Um, and quite often, I, I, I had one grouse about this. Whenever we go to the TARDIS, there's the background noise of the TARDIS. And you cut to the TARDIS and there's a noise, you know, I don't know what it is that makes the TARDIS work, but there it is in the background. That hum is put in and kept at the same level all the way through the scene. Now, my understanding of the psychology of listening to sound effects is that if you go into a place, you certainly start off with the hum and then you gradually take it down and down and down. Psychologically, this is what happens in your brain if you go into a place that's noisy. And it does mean that towards the end of the scene, if you've got music to do, the music has to uh, pay less attention to this hum that's going in the background. Because quite often, playing a music cue against a background hum can be a bit awkward. But no, the, the, the way that Doctor Who was done, TARDIS, hum TARDIS, all the way through the same level, which was one of my grouses, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I groused a bit, but nobody took any notice, so I, I, I sort of lived with it. Uh, well, we actually, I say we covered. We only covered um, Revelation in terms of the fact that uh, Graham Harper directed it. But do, yes. you, do you have any? That's the, it's another great story. I love it. It's a very black comedy, um, yes. full of great sort of grotesque characters. Yes, and, and, and sort of. Um, I think this is maybe. Uh, maybe this is John Nathan Turner's uh, way that he wanted to shape Doctor Who. It became al- almost a camp thing, really. If you know what I mean, it was. Uh, as you say, grotesque stories full of people with, in, with sometimes absurd costumes and strange stories set in mortuaries and things like that. And um, I, I, thinking back on it, I, there are lots of different elements to this story. There's the element of that was um, William Gaunt represented, um, and then there was. Um, Eleanor Bron cropped yeah. up, but they, they never ever met, did they? The, these two strands never they were intertwined, did they? Or uh, some the, of the characters didn't meet each other. It's yeah. almost like there were lots of different subplots. Yes, that's yeah. right. And I could never quite understand it, but doing the music and particularly doing music for the Daleks, uh, I found very interesting because the synthesizer themselves had a you could come up with a very metallic sort of sound, which matched the Daleks' type of voice as well. And using that, and I certainly found out the way, particularly doing the case of Androzani, found out a way of using percussion in a very um, interesting and sort of exciting way that I took to uh, Revelation of the Daleks, and, and that seemed to help along as well. And you had Alexi Sale as a, as a DJ. Would you have chosen the tracks that he was listening to and playing? Um, no, I don't think I did, really. I, I was never quite convinced by that character. I mean, he's a lovely chap and a fine actor, but... I, I often wonder, 
whether he thought to himself, what on earth am I doing here? <laughs> I'm never quite sure why he was there, really. I mean, I know what his job was. His job was to be a DJ, to playing records all the way. But uh, it did seem a bit of a distraction to the plot for me. Yes. Um, well, and beyond uh, Doctor Who, um, what would have been some of your, your highlights when you did Box of Delights, of course? Yes, Box of Delights I did round about the same time, in the middle of the 80s. And, uh, but Box of Delights, yes, it was an interesting one. Um, they came. To, I'd already worked with Rennie Rye on another ghost story, and the, uh, you know, Box of Delights is a sort of ghost story. Certainly, the supernatural is there. It was a remarkable story. Well, it, it was obviously the original was a. Was it uh, Walter? Uh, who was the? Who was the John writer? Macefield. John Macefield. That's right. It was his story. Uh, with, and there's a great tradition, of course, of um, the BBC doing Box of Delights. It was first done in the 1940s as a radio program, and I don't think that the one we did was the first television presentation of it. I think there had been another television version of it. But they always there was a tradition of always using the same piece of music. I think it's called a Christmas Symphony by Healy Hutchinson, I think it's called. And so that was taken for granted that we would use that as an opening and closing. But I did use a lot of other instruments. I was able to hire a uh, harpist, um, a French horn player, a woodwind player, and incorporate their playing into the electronic music that, that I was doing. I found it very interesting, rewarding programme to work on. Yes, it was uh, very good. Rennie Rye was very good. And the actual, I think at the time, more, it was the most expensive children's story that had ever been put on by the BBC. I think they spent a million pounds on it. Not on me, but um, on, <laughs> on uh, everything else. And it was, I think it's, I haven't seen it recently. I've got the DVD, but I think it's probably stood the test of time. And at the same time, well, you asked about other programmes as well. Uh, well, I mean, I was at the workshop um, for 20 years. I think I worked on about 600 shows. So I think I did 120, or no, more than that, 140 of, of opening title sequences. None of them were the great blockbusters, or one or two were quite well. A wonderful whole range of stuff. You know, uh, Horizon, documentary programmes, other dramas. There was another drama series that I worked on called The Justice Game. And that was wonderful to work on. I did work on a kids series called... Uh, no, it was a school series called um, Look and Read. Now, I did about six, seven, eight series of that. Same producer every time. She knew exactly what I could do. She knew exactly that I could fulfil what she wanted. And in, it's interesting. I go to Doctor Who events quite often, and people are just as interested in talking about Look and Read and the songs that I wrote, the teaching songs, Magic E song. Only last week I was at a convention and said, did you actually write the Magic E song? I said, yes, and they, they were very... I wouldn't say they're just as interested in talking about that. There's certainly there was a, quite a lot of residual interest of people who are now perhaps in their 30s, perhaps even 40s, who grew up with these songs rattling around in their heads. And so what have you... I've, I've exceeded my time, so I'll... What, what have you been... Uh, what, what happened, what's happened in the 18 years then since you were at the BBC? Well, I've had a pretty uh, exciting life. First of all, I've never stopped uh, being a musician. I've working. I played at Ronnie Scott's once. That was quite exciting, and lots of other good jazz venues around. Um, I don't know if you remember, we had a radiophonic concert at the Roundhouse, which was uh, a lot of fun and a lot of hard work. Peter Howell, Paddy Kings, and Mark Ayers and myself. We prepared uh, and worked very hard at a big program, and tickets were sold. I think the crowd were pleased, and we, we look back on that with a certain amount of pride, I think. That, that was one of the highlights of the last 18 years, certainly. Wonderful. And uh, what charity would you like us to uh, uh, get the, the listeners to donate to? 
Well, uh, I think the charity that I've been most impressed with is the um, Macmillan Homes. I think it's the Macmillan organisation that deals with people with terminal illness. It's Doctor Who's 50th anniversary, which is why we've convened and why you've kindly given your time, for which I thank you. I also thank you for writing the soundtrack to my childhood. Um, uh, So what is your message to all the Doctor Who fans out there on this 50th year? I don't know if I have a message I can pass some thoughts on. Um, First of all... um, what a remarkable um, phenomenon Doctor Who is. I, I, I do remember uh, hearing, uh, being there when I, I didn't... Somebody called me from the other room. They said, come and see this programme. I think it's called Doctor Something. And there are these creatures going around. They look like bells. They were talking about church bells. And they were talking about the Daleks, I think. <laughs> church bells. Yes, they do look a bit like church bells. I don't know if they've ever thought of that. Um, and uh, I never thought at that time, oh, it was long before I joined the BBC, that I would be so deeply involved with uh, Doctor Who. And I was very happy to be there when I was. Um, the new generation of Doctor Who episodes over the last ten years look and sound magnificent. It's not quite the same as it used to be. It's a rebirth rather than dragging the old stuff, but I'm very happy to have been involved and can recommend the new series. Brilliant. Well, for your time and your... Uh, and a great interview there. Roger Lim, thank you very much. Thank you. Brilliant. I hope that was all right for you. It was all right for me. I hope it was all right Cracking for, you. for me. Brilliant. Gosh, I... And my thanks to Roger and for Johnny Camden for putting me in touch via Roger's sons, Jeremy and Chris, who I also know. Uh, next up on Who's Round, we have a lady who has notched up a number of episodes from the first five Doctors behind the scenes and much else to boot. Uh, But before we give you that, I'd like to urge you to go to www.macmillan.org.uk which is Roger's chosen charity. Until next time, goodbye. Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles. The war to end all wars. You need to know something that happened before I was king. When I was with the Doctor, the real Doctor. Just look into their eyes. A huddled mass of men and women. Like cattle, herded in their hundreds. They all moved in the same direction. Everyone's got to be in uniform. Stephen! Dodo! Get away while you can! He's an old man. What are you going to do with him? You know the rules. He's a subversive, so he will be shot. We are to announce a grand new offensive. They brainwashed you. We shall send them out to win. Then they unleashed us out into the churn of mud. We shall redouble our efforts. You run hard and fast through the smoke and fire and dust. That's why you gave up the throne. The ground falls away underneath you and you still keep on. You won't see each other again. Hot bullets hiss by. We are proud to announce a grand new offensive. Energy shielding, some kind of array. We shall Scorched and ravaged her into the enemy fire. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.